You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Here's, here's the way it is with preachers. Their primary prayer is that they preach good. But that's the wrong prayer. The real prayer is, who can I help? That's what it really, really comes down to. So I pray this morning I can help somebody. I can make a difference that the Lord would actually do something for you or someone like you or someone sitting next to you or someone sitting next to the person sitting next to you that God would touch you, do something for you today, that this would really um, be just a remarkable morning. And so I want to set this up a little bit. I'm going to be talking about the Luke 24 and the Emmaus Road encounter. And to, to give a little background, obviously, Jesus emerged out of his obscurity walking on to the Jewish scene, three-and-a-half-year flash of glorious brilliance, healing the sick, doing remarkable miracles, confronting hypocrisy, dispensing wisdom, giving hope to the hopeless, preaching and demonstrating what he termed the kingdom of God. And the remarkable thing is they didn't, those who followed him and those who were very close to him didn't really listen to him very closely because over and over again, Jesus warned his disciples of three specific things, that he would be betrayed. Let's say that word betrayed. He would be betrayed, he would suffer and die, and he would rise again from the dead. But not a single one of them apparently fully and completely believed and embraced what he was saying. And I, I think, you know, it would be hard to when you're so captivated and captured by someone as remarkable as Jesus. If you really read the scriptures and see what he was like. Well, after the resurrection, he appeared to his disciples at least 10 times. And there are two extensive stories in both of them in the extensive ones, Jesus is rescuing or restoring followers who are disappointed, disillusioned, and confused. One of those narratives is at the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus appears on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to um, restore Simon Peter. I think the rest of them need some restoration too, but I believe that was one of the primary purposes. He returned to fishing after his disastrous denial of the Lord that the Lord warned him of. Well, you know, the moral of this story is people don't pay much attention to what Jesus says. Have you ever sort of, yeah, and it doesn't usually work well when you don't, uh, but live and learn. Yeah, the second one I've mentioned, uh, the second extensive narrative is in the chapter 24 of Luke. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Think about this. After God raised Jesus from the dead, where do we find him, particularly in Luke 24? We find him on a dusty back road to a town called Emmaus, tracking down, tracking down, intentionally going after, 
two bewildered disciples whose disappointment had fueled depression and confusion settling down into hopeless, hopeless bewilderment. So Jesus went out of his way devising this tailor-made intervention to turn around these two depressed men heading in the wrong direction because that is where unbelief always takes you the wrong way. Now, several things you can take from this morning by the end. I'll just cover them, then we'll go into it a little bit more extensively. Number one, God can be with us and we not know it. Why don't you say that? God can be with me and I not know it. Well, that's true if you don't know it. He is with you. The second thing, God has his own process to free us from unbelief, confusion, and despair. Here's another one. Even, and this is so vital, even the closest associates of Jesus, quote, didn't get it. Or nobody gets it right. How comforting should that be? Very. Thank you. That should be very comforting. So what if you don't get it right? Nobody much gets it right. That'd be the whole point. Yeah. And the last one, but not the only last one, just my current last one. Jesus wants to be wanted. Jesus wants to be wanted. He has feelings. He is a responsive person. So begin to read here in Luke. I'll go several verses at a time and then make some remarkably lucid and penetrating comments. Lucid, look it up. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they walked together, and they talked together, rather, of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. So the resurrection of Jesus attaches himself to these two men in a very profound crisis in their lives based on who Jesus, who they thought Jesus was and what they thought Jesus was doing. Jesus suddenly begins walking with them. He intentionally pursued these two disciples and they were not full of faith disciples, full of zeal disciples. They were disappointed and confused who didn't believe in the resurrection. And it says here that their eyes were restrained. One of the things that struck me is that Jesus came to two men who would not leave it alone. I think if you say anything about my life in Jesus, I just wouldn't leave it alone. What do you mean? I just... Couldn't get over it, no matter what shape I was in. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over this Jesus I had met. No matter how crazy, bad I was, it was, they were, I just never could get over it. I couldn't leave it alone. And as a result, he wouldn't leave me alone. And sometimes I wanted him to leave me alone. But they were talking about what had happened. And I'm going to tell you something. There's something that happens when people talk about Jesus. If you talk about Jesus long enough, he's just liable to show up. 
in his presence and his power and do some wonderful or even disturbing things. But they didn't know it was Jesus, which is such an odd thing, who drew near. Although they were close, intimate disciples, they still didn't recognize him. You can tell they were close disciples if you read uh, and pay close attention to the passages there in Luke 24. Well, the disciple named in the passage, Cleopas, was not a fringe believer. He was close to the apostles. He was close to Jesus. And this should really encourage us. Listen, we all get it wrong sometimes. Turn to somebody and tell them you get it wrong sometimes. You, you do. And, and then say with a scowl on your face in your most self-righteous tone, quit it. No, don't do that. We all get it wrong sometimes. Any one of us can stumble or lose heart or question or misunderstand. But we need to remember this. Jesus went out of his way down a dusty backwater road to bring these two men into that joy and that reality of the resurrected life of Jesus that was available to them. Jesus can be in your very midst and you not even know it. That's remarkable. Did you hear how voice my how my voice ran up when I rose? It's remarkable. That is literally true that Jesus is close to you, in you, every Christian, every believer. Feel it or not, like it or not, know it or not, understand it or not. He inside of you is the hope of glory. Jesus can be with you and you not recognize him. Their eyes were restrained from knowing him, the scripture says. Why? I don't know. I have ideas. Maybe we don't know the exact reason. Maybe we don't. But here's what I think, at least in part. Well, some think God just hid it from them. But um, I've known in my life, we, we don't understand how fickle our hearts are and how that affects what we see or don't see, perceive, or don't understand. We can have a bad day and completely misread what's going on in our lives because we're just that way. We're, it's amazing. God is moving right along. So the condition of our hearts can affect our discernment or our perception or our ability to recognize God and what he's doing in our lives. Really, one reason we need other people to help communicate with back and forth to get better perspective because lots of times, well, I know this, your carnal mind's not your friend. I'll tell you that right now. Um, another day, another story. But Jeremiah tells us how things can affect our ability to see the Lord and what he's doing. Jeremiah 17, 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's pretty strong language. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. A quick point there. Trusting yourself is a departure from God. Second verse. What will this man be like? He will be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. Pay close attention. It didn't say good won't come. Because of the condition of your heart, you won't see it. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. I'm going to say this. Some of our wildernesses are self-imposed. Blame who you will. 
but some of them are self-imposed. And then blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He should be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, etc., etc. That's powerful. But in Jeremiah 17, good comes, but because of the condition of our heart, we don't see it. And we can create our own wilderness experiences by our lack of trust. Another idea in all this is God may come to you in an unfamiliar way. He could reach out to you in a Presbyterian way. Or a Pentecostal way. Or a Catholic way. Uh oh. Or in a Baptist way. That's been my experience. When I was in college, I had an encounter with the Lord. I had sort of a skirmish. He hadn't quite conquered me, but uh, we had run into each other. And um, I wasn't really doing living my best life now, <laughs> back then. But um, Ralph Mangum, <laughs> a balding, nerdy... Oh, I shouldn't have mentioned his name. Sorry, Ralph. <laughs> Too late now. Of course, I hadn't seen him in 60 years, but... Um, Balding, nerdy, hush puppy shoe wearing, uninvited man came to my room in college to help bring me back to the Lord, and I wanted nothing to do with him because he was simply just not hip enough. I rejected him, but the problem was his words still had effect, and it wasn't long before I had gotten back on track. But for whatever reason, these two could not recognize Jesus, but he used this process to reveal himself to them on a much, much deeper light. So in verses 17 through 19, Jesus says to them, be careful anytime God asks you a question, ladies and gentlemen. He's not looking for information. You got it wrong and he's trying to help you. So Jesus asked him this question, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk in or sad? And Cleopas said to you, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus says, what things? Two questions. What are you talking about that makes you sad and what things in particular are troublesome? So here's what the Lord does. These questions are Jesus drawing out of those disappointed men the things that they believe that were holding them back that aren't true. I mean, even in the garden, Adam and Eve had fallen, and God came and said, Adam, where are you? Well, he knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where he was. So that's a marvelous thing that God will do. He'll start asking us questions to help us identify what's really true. And of course, uh, their response, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? And he was the only one in Jerusalem who did know what happened. And so then after they treat Jesus like an idiot, Jesus asked them to explain to him what they think happened. And um, they were sad. That was one of the primary things that Jesus saw was the sadness they had because of how bad they had the story, how wrong they had the understanding. 
And see, the Weiss translation of verse 17 says, what are these words you're tossing to and fro one to another in this animated, heated conversation as you're walking? And they came to a standstill, gloomy, countenanced. Another way these guys are described in different versions of the scripture is as you walk in or sad, as you stood still, looking sad, and not one of those descriptions were acceptable conclusions to the reality of the gospel as far as Jesus was concerned, and he was there to change that. Because like it or not, it's true, Jesus is never sad and gloomy after his resurrection. He suffered before, but not after. Jesus' first recorded post-resurrection statement was rejoice. Throw off all your fears. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will find me there. Come on. Be happy. Oh, there's a pandemic. Yeah, and there's a resurrection. Well, my life is awful. Well, yeah, and there's a resurrection. Well, My husband doesn't love me anymore. Well, there's a resurrection. That's the whole point of of this idea is that no matter where you are, what your problems are, they're only insurmountable until you meet someone who had been resurrected from the dead who is on your side and he was resurrected from no contribution to the process of his own. He was dead. He didn't cooperate. God can change your situation even without your cooperation. He would like it, doesn't have to have it. So Jesus chases them down. Their disposition, their quote, stood still looking sad, they're, quote, walking or sad, they're coming to a, quote, gloomy countenance, standstill, quote, could be remedied by a proper understanding of the gospel. God raised Jesus from the dead. But they didn't believe. They were walking away from the purpose of God for their lives, which was in Jerusalem to this little town, Emmaus. And Emmaus had these hot water uh, pools. There were, there, there were places you would go soak. And it's almost like a picture of, of that's where it's a picture of like self-pity. Well, things didn't work out for me, so I'm going to go down there and I'm going to sulk and soak. But you're walking away from your purpose. You're walking away from why you were born. You're walking away from what you were meant to be, who you were meant to, to what you're meant to do, who you were meant to be which is what always happens when unbelief takes control of your life. Because inaccurate perceptions lead us to bad decisions, and bad decisions lead us to destructive behavior. And if you become uh, hopeless, which is a byproduct of wrong believing, you become vulnerable to giving up your resolve to do the right thing, make the right choices, and live your best life. It is just simply that simple. What you believe controls who you are and what you do. If you think you control who you are and what you do apart from what you believe, you're sadly mistaken. What you believe matters.
So let's go on a little further. Everybody okay? So these two um, responded to Jesus here in verse 19 when he said, What things? And they say, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, we were hoping, we don't hope anymore, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company, thank God for the faithful women, who were, yeah, whoop it up, who arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. Yes, certain women of our company arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. When they didn't find his body, they came saying they'd had a vision of angels who said he was alive. Well, some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly as the women had said, but no one has seen him. Say that with me, but no one has seen him. But no one has seen him, they're saying to Jesus. But no one has seen him. No one has seen him. The two men were bemoaning the fact that no one had seen Jesus since his death, and yet they were standing there talking to him. but no one has seen him. Meaning, Jesus, there's simply no proof that you're alive. I I think you missed that. Meaning, Jesus, there's simply no proof that you're alive. Here's the thing about faith. If, if, If there's a little uncertainty in your faith, it's not real faith. If there's not a way to wriggle out of believing, you're not really dealing with legit faith. It's never so concrete that there's no doubt to be seen. Come on. You want a word from God so sure to stand on, apart from the Scripture, that you won't doubt. There is no such thing. Or there's not legit faith. At some point, you got to jump. You got to jump into the pool to get wet. You can look at it. You can hear people talking about the water. Hey, I would kick you in if I had half a chance, but you got to jump. There is a point where you just have to. There's a decision. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's not. But at some point, you have to decide. They said they hadn't seen him, but they were talking to him. You know, if all this is true, who have I been talking to all these years? And who's been talking back? That'd be the scary thing. (laughs) But we don't see things as they are. Oftentimes we see them as we are, looking through your filters. It's a wise man who realizes that we often project what we think we detect. Think about that. But verse 22 says, when the women came and told them the tale of an empty tomb, they were astonished. When they heard what the women said, the first, here was the apostles' first response to the first evangelist, which happened to be a woman who was trying to evangelize the apostles into faith. Here was their response. 
they said their words were like idle tales, nonsense, fairy tales, wild talk of those in delirium or hysteria. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That's either true or the gospel's true. I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. It's going to shock you a little bit because you've got to make a decision. Either this story is true or you've got no business messing with it or anybody that believes it. There's no middle ground. There isn't. Oh, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Well, he was a great teacher, but he wasn't just... I mean, yeah, the great teacher who said he was the son of God, the great teacher who said he'd be raised from the dead, you're not a great teacher if the stuff like that you say is wrong. You're a, you're a deceiver. You're not a great teacher. No, you've got to go all in. You can't play. Who is a great teacher? No, you're just BSing when you say that is your reason for not believing. That stands for Bible study. <laughs> Once again, we should be encouraged. Even the closest associates of Jesus have trouble believing. There's no condemnation in having trouble believing. Because if you don't have trouble believing, what you ultimately come to isn't worth much. If you haven't been through something over it, what's it worth? If it hadn't cost you a friend or a relationship or a job or something, what's it worth? And then there was Thomas. You remember Thomas? Good old doubting Thomas. What a name to follow you down through all eternity. He said he wouldn't believe unless he could put his finger in the holes, put his finger in the holes of his hand and in his side. That's what he said. But when Jesus showed up, we got that picture. Is that up there? When, hey, praise the Lord. Jesus said to Thomas, see, Thomas said that. If I can't, uh, if I can't stick my finger in, I'm not, I'm not believing. We love these kids. Thank you, Jesus. Moving right along. He said to Thomas, when, when, when Jesus shows up and Thomas is there, he says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And when you look at that, you have got to conclude one of two things. That is either Car uh, Caravaggio painted this in around 1690. This is an ancient, sub, sub, relatively speaking, an ancient painting. That is either a literal representation or it's absolute foolishness. Either Thomas put his finger into the hole or into his side, or he did not, and we should all give this thing up. That, to me, was shocking when I saw it the other day. But Jesus says, well, Thomas, you're going to be blessed, but there are others who are more blessed, people that have never, never seen me, and they believe. 
I've never seen him and I believe. You've never seen him. Maybe you have. I know some who have. But then Jesus begins to sort of bear down on these two. Verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then Jesus started at Moses and the prophets, and he went all the way through the Old Testament explaining to those two himself. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, you would assume that's what this is saying. So when they came near the village, he indicated that he would walk away. He would have gone farther. But they constrained him. Say that one word, constrained. They constrained. That's a strong word. It's beyond asked. It's approaching begged. They constrained him and they said, abide with us as toward evening and the day is far spent because something had been going on. Maybe something's going on with you today you don't understand. Maybe there's something stirring in your heart you can't understand. Maybe there's this burning that we find later in the chapter. Maybe there's something that's began to assault your wrong conclusions about who Jesus is. That's because the Spirit of God will do that. He will stir in the part of you that you have trouble clearly laying hold of until later. You just simply know something's going on here that I don't understand. And that's what was going on with these two men. But they actually begged him to stay and he did. Why? Because Jesus wants to be wanted. He wants to be invited. He wants to be included. He wants to be communicated with. And this is not the only time he did that. He did that on a number of occasions. One time he was walking on water as the disciples strained at rowing. And the Bible tells us he acted like he was just going to walk on by, but he didn't. What is he doing? He wants to be wanted. It's easy. He wants to be appreciated. Donna and I were talking. She calls this sort of Jesus in the shadows. Donna will ask the Lord for a particular thing, my wife, and, and later, 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 she'll get her prayers answered and she'll realize uh, that she forgot she prayed that because it was sort of Jesus in the shadows and she'll remember and then she'll be thankful. But he watches to see our response. Andy mentioned he, he looked at what people gave and he admired the woman who gave a little Amount, but it was a huge amount to her. He watches. It matters to him what we do. But he could have just walked away from those two men, but he didn't because they, they constrained him. Well, the story goes that they ate bread. They ate together, and when they broke bread, Jesus appeared to them. Suddenly, they could recognize him, and the minute they recognized him, he was gone. You have to wonder about that. It's important for you to be able to believe when you can't see. I would think he would appear and then say, hey, finally, you guys are getting it. Let's really get into this in a much more deeper and profound way, but he doesn't. 
He doesn't. Because the point was to get them to, to believe. I've been pretty amazed in what goes on these days. We're going to close here. There's this, um, there's this man, some of you may be aware of him, Jordan Peterson. And he started out as an atheist, and now he's a real believer. And it's the most bizarre. He, he began to meet the Lord, I think, because he began to teach the Old Testament and the truths of the Bible. He could see the truths of the Bible without believing entirely in Jesus. And, and But what he discovered was these have to be universal truths because there's too much profound wisdom for these just to be random concepts and ideas. And he went through some pretty serious uh, um, challenges himself, physical challenges. He became very popular because of the way he communicates about what he thinks it is to grow up and, and, and be a responsible person. But he has said some things recently about Jesus that I just simply have to read to you. He says this, you can't write a more tragic story. And I'll use his language and I'll tell you what it meant. It's the aggregation. That means cluster of things brought together of everything everyone is afraid of. See, when you see the cross, what you're actually looking at is the sum total of everything to be afraid of in life. There was no death more painful than crucifixion. That's why the Romans invented it. It was to punish political miscreants. A slow, agonizing death by suffocation and dehydration and exposure. Extraordinarily painful, and that's bad. Plus, you know it's coming, and that's part of the story. Plus, your close friend betrayed you into it. Plus, your people turned against you. Plus, you're led by a tyrant who doubts truth. Plus, you're a victim of the Roman Empire. Plus, you're completely innocent. Plus, everybody knows it. Plus, they choose a criminal to be released from this experience instead of you, even though they know he's a criminal and they know you're innocent and you're young and you've done no wrong and all you've done is help people. It's everybody's nightmare. But Jesus suffered the ultimate tragedy, which is when the worst possible thing happens to the best possible person. An innocent man who is completely sinless, who's working on behalf of only the good and the truth, and he's broken and he's destroyed for unjust reasons by self-righteous and jealous religious leaders. And that early and young in the prime of his life, and betrayed as well. That's the ultimate tragedy. That's what you see when you see the cross. All your fear, all, all your betraying on that cross, all your evil on that cross, all theirs, all yours, all everyone's, summed up in one geographical in time place called the cross. And it's the only solution to life is to have faith in Jesus that not only he died, 
but you died. And it has a happy ending. He's, he's, he's raised from the dead. And you're raised from the dead. And he proves that living this life of sacrifice now ensures that your future will be better. I don't know if I could add anything to that. <laughs> Never thought about it. Everything that we're afraid of, Jesus went through on the cross. Whew. Never thought about that before. I met Jesus when I was five years old. But I met Jesus several years ago. I, I literally met Jesus. I was a Christian my whole life. And I met Jesus. So maybe you have asked Jesus into your heart at some point in your life. But he's not real to you. When I met Jesus several years ago, he became real to me. He is a real person to me. And he can be a real person to you. He's so good. The picture that Robin painted of Jesus is just a reflection of who God the Father is. And so often in church culture, you just have this kind of feeling about God. Like he's so far away. He's, you're a bad guy, you know. He's looking down on me, judging me. But you know what? Jesus is a picture of what the father, he only did what the father told him to do. He looked to the father. What do I do? The father is just a, an, a, a mere image of Jesus. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to meet Jesus today. And even if you've met him before and you really want him to be real to you, he can be real to you. I know people who have seen Jesus, Muslims who have seen Jesus, who have met Jesus and became Christians. That's possible. If that is in your heart, it's available to you. So God, will everybody stand with me? So I just... If you want to meet Jesus today, maybe you've never known him. Maybe you thought you knew him. Maybe you need a fresh knowing. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I want to know you. I open my heart to you. I don't even know what all that means, but I open my heart to you and I give my life to you fresh. Thank you for dying for me. 
thank you for taking all of my sin and shame and pain and rejection and everything on you so that I could be free. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. Help us to know you in such a real way. Thank you that you are a God who knows everything that we go through. Every pain, every fear, every suffering, every doubt, every rejection. You've walked through that already. You know what it feels like. Thank you that you are that good, God. That you sh- we, sh- we share, you share when I'm in pain. You know what it feels like. God, I pray that you would just be so real to us. So real. Thank you, God. And we want to give you the opportunity, if you want to get prayer, if you want to have somebody walk through you through salvation, asking Jesus into your heart, you need healing, whatever you need today. We're going to have some prayer team members over here and please feel free. Please come. Come as you are. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a good Christian. Just come. Right? (laughs) These beautiful people would love to pray for you, okay? And God, I just pray that you would bless each one here. Bless their day. Help it to just be beautiful and joyful. And they would feel the sunshine on their face. And they would feel your goodness and your love. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter. Go eat some good food, okay? You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.